This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to The Health Report with me, Norman Swan. Today on the program, a summer season episode on the brain. A medication which may prevent cancer and dementia and cost a few cents a day. Now, is that too good to be true? In times of trouble, how do we know who to trust and is it locked in our genes? And news for soccer mums and dads and weekend players, does heading the ball do you harm? And some experts argue that about 50% of dementia is preventable through things like maximising education early in life, keeping your blood pressure down, not smoking, having a good diet, avoiding diabetes and obesity, reasonably intense exercise and maintaining a good social network. This year, a consortium of Australian universities and research centres published the results of a randomised trial looking at this very idea. This is a randomised trial, not an observational study, into a cocktail of non-drug interventions to see if they help people whose thinking and memory are impaired or declining. Professor Karen Anstey is Director of the University of New South Wales Ageing Futures Institute and a Senior Research Scientist at Neura, and I spoke to her about the findings. Hello. Yep. So tell us about the people you studied in this, in this randomised trial. Yeah, so this trial focused on people who have either subjective cognitive decline or mild cognitive impairment. So subjective cognitive decline is when you feel that your cognition is deteriorating or someone who knows you well thinks that it is, but we can't actually um, identify a change on clinical testing. But it's been shown that that group are actually at increased risk of developing mild cognitive impairment and dementia. So we targeted that group and then people who also had, um, had a cognitive impairment that was clinically accessible. So I'm feeling more forgetful, but when, you, when I go to a neuropsychologist, they, they don't find anything abnormal. Yeah. Yeah. And what were the interventions you studied? Right. So there was a control condition, which was an online educational uh, program that we've developed and assessed in healthy uh, middle-aged adults who are at risk of dementia. And that is an educational model, module that tells you about dementia and risk factors. We have an educational module about physical activity, one about diet and one about um, cognitive engagement. And then the intervention group received the same module but they also had a face-to-face -face session with an exercise physiologist and two follow-up appointments and a face-to-face -face session with a dietitian who gave them very tailored dietary advice and followed them up as well. And they were also given a subscription to a brain training package. So let's talk about the diet. You were encouraging them to get onto the Mediterranean diet, is that right? Yes, that's correct. Um, the the systematic reviews have shown that the Mediterranean diet is associated with about a 30% reduced risk of Alzheimer's disease. Um, so that was the diet that was selected for this intervention. And the exercise, does it matter what kind of exercise they were taking? Because I, I understand that to be, that it's going to be reasonably intensive to work. Um, well, for this trial, what we've done, we've, we've now conducted a few of these body-brain life trials and we've got to the point now where we leave the exercise prescription to the exercise physiologist so that it can be tailored to the individual. So we know from systematic review literature that meeting national guidelines is associated with a 30% reduced risk of dementia, which is 150 minutes a week, you know, the usual um, guidelines that we hear about. But we also know it's very, very difficult to to change habit and to get people um, who are inactive to start exercising. So for this trial, we left it to the exercise physiologist to, to design a personalised program, which we thought was more appropriate. And uh, we think that that's, that's the way to go in the future. 
And did they stick with the brain training? Because people often don't. Uh, it's a nice idea. That's a but... really good question. Uh, no. So um, our trial, like um, also the finger trial, which is the other, the very famous trial, multi-domain trial, um, had poor adherence to brain training. So what we find is, uh, and we've seen this in other studies as well, people start off very enthusiastic, but they get bored with it. Uh, so we had about a 20% adherence to the full program of brain training. Most people started the brain training, but they didn't stick with it. And what were the results? Um, so this trial showed that the people who received the more intensive intervention, uh, they had cognitive improvement at a six-month follow-up. So, uh, and so the, improvement rather than just the decline yes. stopping, they actually got better? Um, yeah, so what we see with cognition is that when we repeat tests, people um, do better from practice effects. So... Uh, we tend to see a slight improvement, you know, over a period of six six months. And in, in normal um, ageing where we would, or people with cognitive impairment, we'd be seeing a decline. It seems like a very short time to get an improvement. Um, yes, it was a short time, but this is an at-risk group where we're seeing uh, the, the reason this particular trial was targeting this group is that we do see conversion to from from these conditions into dementia. So people with mild cognitive impairment you know, have a five to ten percent chance of progressing to dementia within twelve months. Uh, people with subjective cognitive decline have twice the risk of developing mild cognitive impairment. So this is a group a group sort of who are who are at risk of transitioning fairly quickly, which is why they're a key group for intervention. Now, often randomised trials are into single things like brain training or the diet or the exercise. How valid is the package of stuff? I mean, I, I realise it's more real yeah. world, but you know, it, it also creates its own problems in terms of knowing what works. Um, well, that's a very good question about this, this whole multi-domain approach. So what's happened in the field of dementia risk reduction is that people did focus on individual risk factors like physical activity, diet, etc., and we're at the point now where we do have evidence. We've got the WHO guidelines uh, for based on the intervention evidence for each of these individual risk factors. But the consensus has been that we really need to target more than one risk factor at a time because we don't know uh, exactly which risk factor um, is, is, is salient for which person. And we think we'll get a much bigger effect if we target everything at once. That does mean we can't then go back and unpack and work out for which person, which risk factor was important. Once you crack the egg, you've cracked it. And just very briefly, because we're running out of time, Karen, what's this? You, you're using the ANU's dementia risk score. Just very briefly, how do you, what's yep. this dementia risk score? So that's a risk score that um, I led the development of that was based on data synthesis. So we synthesised all of the literature um, on risk factors for dementia that was available at the time, and we developed a weighted composite risk score, which is freely available um, and people can go in and assess their risk. And then that was validated against three um, international cohort studies, including the US Cardiovascular Health Study, the Rush Memory and Aging Study, and the, the Swedish Kungsholmen Project. And it was shown to predict dementia in those cohorts. And we've also validated it in an Australian cohort. So we use that as a what we call a surrogate outcome measure, uh, particularly in, in adults uh, who are, or in trials where we're not going to follow up people long enough to see if they develop dementia. Well, we'll have a link to the Dementia Risk Score on the Health Reports website. Karen, thanks for joining us. That's yeah. fascinating work. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Thank you. Professor Karen Anstey is Director of the University of New South Wales Ageing Futures Institute and is a Senior Research Scientist at Neura. And you're listening to Aaron's Health Report Summer Season with me, Norman Swan. 
According to an Australian study, a common out-of-patent and therefore cheap medication that is used to control type 2 or adult-onset diabetes may also reduce cognitive decline and the incidence of dementia, at least in people with diabetes. But who knows, maybe more broadly. The medication is called metformin, and the lead author in this study was Professor Cathy Samaris of the Garvin Institute in Sydney. I think we are being naive if we think we really know exactly what metformin does. Um, We've thought for a long time that it is something that makes insulin work better, an insulin sensitizer. Um, But about 15 years ago, some really great research actually showed that it has a major glucose-lowering effect by lowering the amount of sugar that the liver produces, particularly overnight. But we know from some of the other studies that it has a lot of other effects. For example, it may even change the way our genes are wired. So it can change the way our genes are expressed, epigenetic changes in response to taking the medication. It probably changes the gut microbiome. There's quite a bit of research suggesting that it alters the gut microbiome and therefore may have anti-inflammatory effects through changes on the gut microbiome. There's some interesting research looking at how it might change the way the body ages, so there are processes that lead to cell death, including the way proteins fold and the way that they are um, uh, arranged in the cell that allows the cell to function really well, so that it may explain some of the, the data around people living longer when they are on metformin. And there are some interesting animal research studies that have suggested that you know, that is actually a true phenomenon rather than just a simple observation that has been made. And there are trials going on to see whether it prevents cancer. Well, there are, and there have been two randomised control trials looking at one, prostate cancer, and secondly, breast cancer, showing that if metformin is added in to standard therapy for these two cancer types, then the outcomes were better in the longer term. And that also fits with... Um, some of the data around modest weight reduction in patients who have cancer who are overweight, that they also improve outcomes. Metformin can cause in some of the studies a 3 to 5 kg weight loss. So um, there are some very, very interesting um, benefits to metformin that are not simply um, quarantined, if you like, by diabetes alone. So this study was not a trial. You were observing, you know, the, the University of New South Wales has this long-running study observing people as they age and doing brain scans and what have you. And you, you were observing people with and without diabetes and the people and the medications they were on with diabetes and doing very intensive uh, developmental tests on them to see whether they're, how their cognitive function was going. Correct, Norman. The Sydney Memory and Ageing Study um, has recruited over a 1,000 people um, from the Wentworth um, uh, area. Um, And all of these people have very generously come in for days of testing. So we look at their metabolic profiles. We look at, uh, they answer a whole range of questionnaires about their health, about having falls, about what kind of work they've done, what kind of environmental exposures they may have had in workplaces, how much weight they've put on over the years. Um, And in addition to that, we've been looking at vascular measures. We've been looking at a whole range of measures in blood to do with inflammation. And then the cognitive testing, which is a real strength of the study. And what did you find when when you looked at whether or not they were taking metformin? So it basically removes the effect 
effect of having diabetes on cognitive ageing. So diabetes so, speeds up cognitive ageing, and correct. if you're on metformin, it seems to slow it down to normal. It or, makes it exactly like every other 76 to 96-year-old that was in our study who didn't have diabetes. So it completely removed that effect that you see, uh, whereas the people who had diabetes and were not metformin had that very much steeper loss of uh, cognition that you would that we know about in, in type 2 diabetes. But the dementia data were really uh, the, the fascinating things for me. Because of the very, very rigorous assessment of cognition, um, we could come up with um, a dementia diagnosis. And, and the team involved in this are, are international experts at, at dementia. So they involve Perminder Sashdev and Henry Bradati and their team of neuropsychologists. And so all of the events around dementia were adjudicated events, which means you have to very, very, very rigorously look at all of the data and go, yes, this person has crossed the line and meets a diagnosis of dementia. Prior studies have even been just like assessed by telephone call. Oh, yes, you've got a, di a dementia diagnosis. So that's really not very sound research um, methodology. I think we've probably had one of the, the most rigorous assessments of cognition to date in this kind of observational study. So it, it really was very, very clear cut that we saw these profound reductions, 80% reduction in the rate of dementia in people with diabetes who were on metformin. And presumably, if it was cause and effect, it was due to those other effects that you were talking about, inflammation, effect on the immune system, goodness knows what else. Well, we tried to control for as much as we possibly could to make sure that any effect that we were observing could be attributed to metformin. And, and hopefully you'll talk about it, Norma, but you can't say for sure. But we controlled for age, obviously, for the presence of heart disease, blood pressure, cholesterol. There's even a gene that increases the risk of development of dementia called apolipoprotein E epsilon 4. It's a mouthful. Um, but we even controlled for that so that we couldn't attribute what we observed to other potential factors. But there are always biases, aren't so is in these observational studies. So given it is an observational study, but done in this detail, mm. is this ready for showtime? In other words, you, um, it's going to be very hard to repeat this study. It's going to have to be done over years and years and years down the track. Are we ready to use metformin now on the basis of a study like this and some of the other findings out of metformin? No, I think we need the randomised control trial. So we're going to wait a decade, have we? happening. <laughs> well, the randomised control trial will start as soon as um, the pandemic settles and, um, and we can start recruiting people. So we put our data into the National Health and Medical Research Council and were fortunate enough to be awarded um, with grant funding to look at this in people without diabetes. Because for me, we know that the use of metformin in diabetes is, it's, it should be there as a foundation medication for all people with type 2 diabetes. We know that from data that show the lower cancer so, rates. Yeah, but the blockbuster effect mm. is if it works in people without diabetes. Well, that's what we need to do the randomised control trial in. We need to do it in people without diabetes. Cathy, thanks for joining us. You are very welcome, Norman. 
Professor Cathy Samaras, who is theme leader in healthy ageing at the Garvin Institute and an endocrinologist at St Vincent's Hospital in Sydney. Throughout the COVID-19 pandemic, there's been a lot of talk about trust as people have been desperate for information they can rely upon. But what is it that makes us trust someone who's basically a stranger? What do we look for? It has enormous implications, not just for COVID-19, but for our relationships to the people we might entrust with our finances. Some say that we are genetically programmed to read all sorts of things into how someone looks, and it's that super-fast first impression that makes the difference. But is that true? Researchers at the University of Western Australia and my alma mater, Aberdeen University in Scotland, have studied this, comparing identical to non-identical Australian twins. The lead author was Dr Claire Sutherland. Hello. So how true is this that we make this quick judgement from strangers' faces? Yeah, it's really incredible. So like you said, we think about trust as being something that you take time over and you consider carefully. But actually, we find that despite the saying, don't judge a book by its cover, we make these really fast impressions very, very readily. And these impressions can have all sorts of consequences. So for example, facial impressions of how trustworthy someone looks can even influence the sentence someone gets for a very serious crime. Really? Yeah, um, there's a correlation between facial trustworthiness and mugshots and sentencing decisions. Um, it can affect how likely we are to lend money to other people. And of course, if you think about going on Tinder, it's very obvious how a first impression can have really important consequences. And of course, every photograph on Tinder is completely accurate, um, I'm told. You know, not that I know. From, from, <laughs> yeah. from. Um, so, so what was the question you were trying to answer in this study? Yeah, so we've all heard the saying, attractiveness is in the eye of the beholder, right? And what we wanted to know is if that's true for trust as well. So do we agree or disagree on how we trust others when we meet strangers for the first time? And we found that actually people did disagree about who looks trustworthy to quite a surprising extent. So then we wanted so you to could, know So you couldn't generalise, you know, the colour of the eyes, symmetrical, symmetry of the face, that sort of thing. There was a lot of variation. <laughs> Yeah, there definitely are cues that we know uh, in general people find trustworthy. So, for example, someone who's smiling. Smiling is basically the biggest predictor of trustworthiness in a photograph. Um, but I guess as well as these consensus cues, there's definitely variation so that we might trust different people. For example, based on your experiences, you might find people with green eyes more trustworthy and I might trust people with blue eyes. And so the question is, is this in your genes or is it from experience? In other words, the environment? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So with the help of Twins Research Australia, we recruited over a thousand twins across Australia. So a big thank you both to Twins Research Australia and all the twins who took part. Um, and we study twins because we can compare identical twins who share 100% of their genes and non-identical twins who share on average 50% of their genes. And basically, we look to see if there's a difference between these two groups. If there's a difference, it suggests that something genetic is driving these impressions. Uh, and that's actually not what we found at all. So we found and said that none of the twin pairs, uh, whether identical or non-identical, strongly agreed on their impressions at all. So these impressions were surprisingly idiosyncratic, suggesting that instead what's important is someone's unique experiences in the world. So what we think is probably happening is that as we go about our lives, our decisions about who we think looks trustworthy or not probably is also based on specific social interactions we have with people. So that bastard we met on Tinder who looked trustworthy but wasn't will never trust somebody with blue eyes ever again. That's it, precisely. And if I met someone else, then I might have a completely different impression. And did you investigate what that experience was, even though I sort of typified it in the most facile way? 
Well, I think that's the next step, really. So, like I said, we know quite a lot about the consensus cues that drive these impressions, the sorts of cues that almost everyone would agree on. And we don't really know what specific kinds of facial cues might be driving disagreement, which is a really fascinating question, I think. But we talk about body language as well. It's not just the face. You know, when people are standing up there at the, and telling us about the latest in COVID-19, whether it's Australia, New Zealand or elsewhere, it's how they're behaving as well. And what sort of factor does that have, whether you're sort of wriggling or shifting, you know, shifting your stance and that sort of thing, which makes people wonder whether you're shifty? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And there's been a little bit of work, I think, on where people's eye direction is. So someone looks more trustworthy if they're holding your gaze. If they're looking away from you, they look less trustworthy, even though I believe that's not actually an accurate cue. So smile, hold somebody's gaze and look relaxed. That's, you know, just... And, yeah. then, and then fulfill the trust. In other words, you've got, to, you've got to deliver on the trust. It's not just looking like it. Well, that's what our study would suggest, I suppose, because these experiences are playing a role in how people trust. Yeah, OK. It's a, it's a minefield. We'll come back to you when you've actually looked at what the experiences were. It'll be fascinating. Thank you. Dr Claire Sutherland, who's a senior lecturer in psychology at the University of Aberdeen and an honorary research fellow at the University of Western Australia. As we look to the year ahead and the prospect of sports returning much more widely, lots of parents will be hoping their kid chooses soccer. They prefer it to traditional ball sports because they worry about injuries to the head and neck. But there's one part of a soccer game that has researchers worried, and it's the practice of heading the ball, which some players can do many hundreds of times during a season. And that's not just elite players. A recent study has reported on findings on memory tests, and compared them to players who head the ball a lot or a little, and whether they carry the gene called APOE4, which raises your risk of Alzheimer's disease. Michael Lipton is Professor of Radiology and Psychiatry at Albert Einstein College of Medicine in New York. When I first started studying heading in soccer, which would have been around 2011, there was not very much known specifically about heading, There was certainly information about the cognitive performance of players in general, and some of that was attributed to heading or other head injuries, but there really hadn't been studies that had looked specifically at the role of heading as opposed to other types of events like concussion and collisions. So tell us what you did in the study. We're reporting from a large study of about 400 adult amateur players, not pros. They're not university teams. They're people who have jobs and go to school and are playing recreationally. And what we do is assess how much heading they do, and then we examine their brain function and brain structure using some computerized neuropsychological tests as well as MRI. And then we also take a profile of the DNA of each person from their blood. In this study, what we're reporting on is the relationship of the amount of heading a person has done over the prior year and how they perform on a test of verbal memory. It's essentially the ability to correctly remember a moderate size grocery shopping list over a period of about 20 minutes. And we looked at whether having a specific gene called the apolipoprotein E4 gene variant has any impact on the likelihood for someone who heads more or less to have better or worse brain function in the area of memory. 
How do they remember? I mean, this one is ironic, but how do they remember how many headers they've done? Nobody remembers that. Uh, That's what I imagine, clear, particularly if they've got yeah, brain damage. Just to be clear, yeah. We've actually done a fair amount of work in the early parts of this study to develop methods for estimating the amount of heading that a person does over different periods of time. And this has been validated by having trained observers watch from the sidelines. And so in this study, we're actually dividing the players up into four groups from lowest to highest amount of heading. So what did you find? We found that heading, and in particular, high amounts of heading, are associated with worse performance on this particular memory test. And there seems to be a threshold level in the neighborhood of a little over a thousand headers per year, which may sound like a lot, but it's not uncommon. And what we find is that people above that threshold, which is the upper 25% or so of the players, that they have a greater likelihood of having worse function on this particular memory test. What we've done new in this study is we've then looked at the gene in these individuals and taken a look at how having what we refer to as the E4 gene variant and we should oh, just explain this variant now because yeah. it is associated with a higher risk of Alzheimer's disease later in life. Yeah, the apolipoprotein epsilon 4 allele, or E4, and a person could either have none, one, or two of these. It is associated with many different things, including cardiovascular disease, but it's most well known for increasing risk for Alzheimer dementia. It's also associated with earlier onset and what is a little bit less known is that in traumatic brain injury, in particular in more severe traumatic brain injury, the E4 allele is, or the E4 gene is associated with worse outcomes, and in particular in the area of cognitive function, such as memory. And that played out so in the study. What we found is that when we look at the players who do a lot of heading and those who do very little heading, and we stratify them based on the presence of this gene, we find that if you don't do very much heading, even if you do have the gene, it doesn't seem to affect your risk. But if you look at the people who do a lot of heading, the risk is significantly elevated. It's by a, something like a factor of four if you do have this gene. So it's not necessarily just having a lot of exposure to headers over time, but if you have this particular gene, it's very possible that that may increase your risk that that heading will have an adverse effect. And on the other hand, if you don't have it, it may not be as detrimental. But you still might get a bit of verbal memory loss, it's just the, the, the risk is higher if you have the gene. The risk is substantially higher if you have the gene. So are we starting to get to a place where you regulate heading in soccer? Secondly, do you start doing gene testing for people who are taking their soccer to an, another level or indeed rugby or indeed American football? Yeah, or even in other settings such as combat. I would frame it as using genetic profiling to assess an individual's risk. And even without the genes, we can talk about controlling the amount of heading. Because it affects everybody. Yep. It just affects some people right. worse than others. And the second question I've got is, 
anything from the brain scan that suggests that they're increasing the risk of dementia 40 years later? What we find is that using specific types of MRI, we can detect changes in the brain even before there's anything detectable in terms of cognitive performance. A concern for the sports authorities. Look, thanks very much for joining us. You're very welcome. Michael Lipton is Professor of Radiology and Psychiatry at Albert Einstein College of Medicine in New York. This has been The Health Report. I'm Norman Swan, and I hope to see you next week. Listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio, and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.